0: Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. We are wrapping up our February teaching series today, which is titled Relationship Killers. And we didn't need to have a series for you to know this. There are plenty of things that you can do to kill a relationship but I think if we look at all of the different things that cause relationships to die, to suffer, to struggle, I think that the number one culprit that underlies all relationship killers is this. It's actually a lack of character. See, when a person lacks character, they think that like everything in the world simply revolves around them. When a person lacks character, they can intentionally hurt other people, but believe somehow or another that it's justified, that it's okay. When when people lack character, they never see that they're wrong. It's always your fault. A, A person who lacks character doesn't take responsibility for their own actions because at the end of the day, compromise is not that big a deal for someone who lacks character. And so we can talk about things like pride. Pride can be a relationship killer, but pride is connected to a lack of character. We talk about the the big three reasons that marriages fail. It's communication. It's financial issues. it's, It's sexual expectations. All of those things are connected to a lack of character. And so, today, as we jump into our final week, we have a a lot of ground that we want to cover, but we want to talk about a lack of character when it comes to our sexual desires. And so, the relationship killer we're going to focus on today is lust. Now, if you're new to church, you might be a little surprised to hear a pastor inside of a sanctuary on a Sunday talking about sex and lust and pornography. And for some people, just hearing the word spoken, it seems like it's a dirty word and it shouldn't be spoken about so, so openly. Maybe, maybe, Pastor Alex, you should whisper it when you say it. That we're gonna talk about sex. Or don't even say it, just spell it. We're gonna talk about S-E-X. Or, or, or maybe, Pastor, don't even talk about it. <laughs> and so here's the truth. Avoiding the subject of sex and sexuality does not make us holy, and it doesn't make us healthy. Uh, you may not have thought about this, but, but we may not all struggle with the same thing. Um, some people uh, struggle with violence and anger towards people. That may not be your struggle. Some people struggle with wanting to steal and covet and take things that aren't theirs, but that may not be your struggle. But when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to sexual sins, every single person, if you're human, is gonna struggle with this one. And so to not talk about it in a church service would be to not speak into one of the most important things that we need to discuss. Uh, Sex is not something separate from our Christian life, no. Sex and how God intended for it is something that we need to understand if we want to experience the fullness that God has. So we're going to maybe be a little uncomfortable because depending on your past, depending on where you come from, you have an opinion about sex. Um, If you're a parent in here, you have an opinion about when you should talk to your kids about sex. And some of you have the opinion that we shouldn't talk to our kids at all. We'll just let the health class at school take care of that. Other people say, no, no, no. When they turn a certain age, we're going to have the talk. And we're going to bring the birds and the bees, and it's going to be epic. And our kids are going to be like, wow, thank you, parent, for sharing this wonderful wisdom with me. And it's going to be wonderful, right? And, and uh and some of you are like, no, no, it's, it's very awkward and I don't wanna to talk to my kids about where they came from and what their mom and I do. And, and so, so I get that this is a, a topic that can be tense and everyone has an opinion about it. But here's the truth, you have an opinion about sex and sexuality, but so does our culture. When we watch Netflix, when we stream whatever we wanna watch, like they have an opinion about sex and how we should handle it. And so I have my opinion, culture has an opinion, but here's the good news for you and I, God has an opinion, all right? And, and, and here's the thing. If God is the creator of all things, then God is the creator of our bodies. He's the one that designed them to go together the way they are. He is the great intelligent designer, creator. He's the one who thought up sex in the first place. And for us to dismiss his opinion as the creator and say, I'm just gonna do with it whatever I want, or I'm gonna listen to culture and what they tell me to do with it, we are going to never experience the fullness that God intended for it. So what my hope as a pastor is, is to encourage you, no matter what your opinion is, and no matter what your past is, no matter what history you bring into this day, to say, you know what, if this is what God says, and I stand here, I want to align myself with him. I want to take whatever my opinion is, and if it's not the same as his, I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to dump it, and I'm going to embrace God's plan for me. Now, there's only a couple reasons why people will not align themselves with God. Number one, people don't align themselves with God because they don't know what God believes. They don't know God's opinion about sex and sexuality. So I I'm ignorant, I, just, I can't align, I don't know what it is. So we need to first understand what his opinion, his view is, but then after we know it, guess what, some people still choose not to align with it. Why is that? Well it's because at the end of the day, I don't know if I can trust his opinion. I don't know if it's really right. And so because of a lack of faith, faith and trust, those are interchangeable words, because I don't trust him, I don't have faith to believe that that's right, instead of trusting him, I'm going to trust me. And in essence, we become the gods of our own lives. You're not God, I'll be God. And I really want to warn you to not do that because it never works out well for you. Align yourself with God, trust him, and believe that when you do, you will experience the fullness of life that God intended. We don't know how to be human. We're not good at it, but God designed us, and he's trying to lead us into a new humanity. So, disclaimer before we start, as we step into this conversation today, I want you to know that I am aware that talking about this subject is going to be heard through your personal filter. And everyone has a different filter. Um, and that filter for you is shaped by your past. Um, if you had in the, your past have, have sexual abuse, if you have had a failed marriage, if you have encountered specific things, you're gonna hear today's message through that filter. And I want you to know this, that you may feel... Guilt and shame today, but that's not my goal. And I think a lot of times the reason that we feel guilt and shame when we talk about these things is because for a lot of us, we like to put our past and our history in the dark, and we don't want to bring it in the light. Let's not talk about that. Let's let's let that die back there. And when we talk about it openly, it's like this is getting brought into the light, and it can be uncomfortable but I want you to know this. My goal is not to shake a condemning finger at you and say, naughty, naughty, shame on you, everybody. No, that's no, not, not what I'm trying to do. I want you to know this, that, that the good news about aligning yourself with God is that God is not interested in exposing you. He's interested in healing you. Like he's interested in taking you from where you're at and saying, listen, you don't have to be a victim anymore. You don't have to be held in bondage by your past. I have newness of life for you. And so if you today could experience freedom, oh, man, your best days are ahead of you. Your best days are ahead of you. And so we could go through testimony after testimony of people that I personally know that when I hear their story, I'm like, wow, there's no hope for you. I don't know how God could do anything with you. And then you see their life changed and you see that God is bigger than us. He's better than we imagine. God's not just an idea. He is a reality. And the person that's probably helped me the most to recognize how awesome and powerful God is is my own father. My dad, before I was born, was screwed up. (laughs) major epic failure in life, not good as far as God's eyes. He committed sexual sins and did things that when I hear him talk about it, I look at him and I say, how could that be you? I don't know how that could be you because you're, you're different. And the only reason he's different isn't because he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. It's because he allowed God to change his heart. And when God changes your heart, he changes what you desire. How cool is that? I don't have to stop trying to want something. I want something new. God's giving me new desires. So no matter what your past is, I want you to know that there is always hope and freedom and newness of life available to you. It's just not always easy to get there. It's not always easy to get there. We would love, um, what was the, who had the fairy godmother? She had the bippity boppity boo. Who was that? Is it Cinderella? Oh, it's the fairy godmother? We want God to be the fairy godmother. We wanna to come to church, we'll walk to the front, we'll have prayer, we'll do whatever if I can get a bippity-boppity-boo. You know, God, I want all these bad things, I'm screwed up, I messed up, bippity-boppity-boo, Woo! I don't have to mess with it anymore. Can I just tell you, God's not into bippity-boppity-boo. <laughs> we want bippity-boppity-boo, but God says, you know what? I don't wanna just zap you and change you. I want to have relationship with you and change you as you walk with me. Whole different game whole different game. So you say, all right, Pastor Alex, I'm hearing you. We need to align with God. We need to take his perspective. What is his perspective when it comes to, to sex and sexuality? Man, our culture's got an opinion. We hear about this a lot. Oh man, we're coming into an election year. Even political parties are taking an opinion about sexual things. What do you believe? Well, I don't believe a political party stance. What I believe existed before there were political parties. What I've come to is the truth which is based upon God's word and so when I look at scripture, when I look at the Bible, I find that the traditional sexual ethic for Christians since Jesus walked the earth for 2,000 years today in every stream of Christianity, you wanna go Orthodox, you wanna go Catholic, you wanna go Protestant, no matter which one you take, in every century, in every culture, here's what it is, sexual abstinence until marriage. If you didn't know what it is, that's it. We abstain from sex until we are entered into the covenant, the promise of marriage. That's what Christians believe. So you say, well, is that what you believe as a church, Pastor Alex? Yes. So here's what we teach, in case you want to know. We teach sexual abstinence and a traditional view of marriage. So, how many of you read your Bible this week? By a quick show of hands. Hey, look at you guys. Um, I didn't do it the other way. Like, raise your hand if you didn't read your Bible. (sighs) Uh, I I found when I was a youth pastor that um, students don't read much, period, let alone the Bible. And so we would have youth services, and I realized that a lot of them didn't know some of the basic kind of stories of the Bible. And so what we would do is we would just kind of say, we're gonna do a different service. We're gonna have Bible story time. And what I would do is I would just simply read the Bible to the youth group. And it was a lot of fun because they heard stories in their fullness from Scripture. Some of them grew up in church, and they heard kind of the watered-down versions of stories. But they'd never heard it from the Bible. And so today, we're going to have a little Bible story time. Uh, Some of you, you're going to be familiar with this story. Others of you, it's going to be the first time you've heard it in its entirety. And so we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this morning, we're gonna look at a story from the life of King David. Now, some of you may know King David. He was the little shepherd boy, right, that was working out in the fields. One day, his dad said, I want you to go check on your brothers who are in the war. So he went and checked on his brothers. And while he was there, this Goliath, this giant, showed up and started defying the name of God. And David was like, what? Why isn't anybody standing up to this guy? And so he did what the army wouldn't do, He said, that giant's got to go. And so this little boy, without any armor on, picked up five stones and a slingshot. Like, what are the chances that this is gonna work? And he went out there and defeated Goliath. He was the same little David that played the harp for King Saul when Saul was being tormented. This was the King David that brought the the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, back to where it was supposed to be It's King David. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Are you ready? If you're not ready, here we go. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. First thing you need to know, David was not where he was supposed to be. When kings normally go out to work, he said, I ain't going, Joab, you go. King David should not have stayed back in Jerusalem. He should have been out doing what a king does, but he was not where he was supposed to be. Verse number two, so late one afternoon after his midday rest, wouldn't it be nice to be a king and have a midday rest? How many of you are my nap people out there? I love a good nap. Sundays are for naps, yes, thank you. After his midday rest, David got out of bed, and was walking on the roof of the palace as he looked over the city he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath he sent someone to find out who she was and he was told that she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite verse 4 then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Everybody say, he knew better. He knew better. Now, she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant... She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Can you imagine getting that text message? Who are you again? Verse six. Then David gets the message. All right, I'm pregnant. He sent word to Joab, hey, send me Uriah the Hittite. Who's Uriah? Oh, Bathsheba's husband. This is getting juicy. So Joab sent him, Uriah, to David. And when Uriah arrived, David asked how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Can you imagine this conversation? Like you have not met this man, but you have sinned against him. You were intimate with his wife that they had a covenant relationship were committed to one another for life. You went and violated that. You slept with the wife and now for the first time you're meeting the man that calls her his. And he's looking him in the eyes and he's having small talk. Wow. Verse eight. David then told Uriah, hey, why don't you you go on home and relax? And so David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace, but but Uriah, he didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and he asked, hey, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, well, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah, well, they're all all living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Uh, David needed to pivot. Uh, Well, stay here today, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next, and then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get a drunk Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver, all right? Writes a letter, seals it up. Uriah, here, I want you to deliver this. And the letter was to Joab, and it instructed him to station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then to pull back so that he would be killed. How messed up is this? All right, I want you to take this letter. Don't open it. Don't open it. Inside the letter, it says, kill him, (laughs) He goes to Joab and he's a, you don't talk about a good soldier. Like he did it. Mm -hmm. So Joab, he assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told the messenger that was gonna give the report, hey, report all the news of the battle to the king. But know this, that the king might get angry and ask why did all the troops get so close to the city? Didn't they know that they would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone on him from the wall? Like, this is like a story. Like, you, you gotta look that one up. What? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him that, hey, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem, traveled back, and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, what's David's response gonna be? Verse 25. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, can you imagine being in her shoes? She mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. There's a whole other sermon in there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Our verse finishes and it says that then Bathsheba gave birth to a son. But notice this last part. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. When we look at the original Hebrew It says that the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. All right, now you have heard the story of David and Bathsheba. It's a well-known story. David decides to stay home instead of going out to battle. Late one afternoon, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. It's important to note here that the text does not indicate that Bathsheba was being seductive or willfully trying to capture David's eye. In fact, David wasn't even supposed to be on the roof. It doesn't say she was on the roof, David was on the roof. He was where he wasn't supposed to be, looking at someone he wasn't supposed to be looking at. And the text never says that Bathsheba was even naked. Uh, Sarah Bowler says this, that the uh, participle, bathing, does not necessarily mean Bathsheba stood outside completely naked. The Hebrew word here has a variety of meanings, including everything from washing one's whole body to washing only one's hands, feet, or face. So it's possible that Bathsheba only washed part of herself and David saw a pretty face that he liked and desired to see more. Scripture does not suggest that Bathsheba intentionally bathed in David's view and even if she had, the choice to sin still belonged to David. He could have looked away, but he chose to give in to temptation. That final verse says that the Lord is displeased with what David had done, not Bathsheba. Some, Some Bible scholars believe that The the bath and the bathing that's mentioned here in this passage was not an ordinary washing for cleanliness, but rather it was a ceremonial bath performed by Jewish women every month after a state of uncleanness. The count for seven days of impurity ended in the evening at sunset, and the evening time of the seventh day was when a woman would carry out the ceremonial washing. While David was not where he was supposed to be, Bathsheba was where she was supposed to be doing what she was supposed to do when she was supposed to do it. From all indications, Bathsheba was obeying the law of Moses. She was actually following God's directions. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says of David, on the other hand, that there is no hint of caring, of affection, or of love, only lust. And as David peered from his rooftop, he liked what he saw so much that he didn't let it go by. I used to teach our students, when you see something you shouldn't look at, you've got to learn to bounce your eyes. Don't keep looking. Don't linger. When that image pops up on your phone, you bounce your eyes. When that girl wears that low cut, you bounce your eyes. You don't linger. You don't look. David did not get that lesson. He did not bounce his eyes. Instead, he asked around about her and upon finding out who she was and that she was married, he still sent messengers and the scripture says that he took her he didn't invite her, he didn't woo her, he didn't lure her, he didn't seduce her, he didn't trick her, no, he took her. The ESV student study Bible says that considering David's elaborate attempt to cover up his act of adultery, it's hardly likely that he made his intention clear when he summoned Bathsheba. So side point here, just because you're anointed and appointed doesn't make you invulnerable to bad decision making. Being appointed and anointed, man, it doesn't make you invulnerable to sexual sin. David is an example of that, so is Samson, so is Abraham, and the list could go on. David committed adultery, and he was the king of Israel. Well, in Israel, there were severe laws prohibiting adultery. In fact, this is from the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy twenty-two, twenty-two. It says that if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. And in this way, you're gonna purge Israel of such evil. If people who committed adultery died, we would all be like, I don't think I'm going to do that. (laughs) Nope. But in the city that David is the king of, he commits adultery, he's guilty, he violates the law, he's deserving of death, and actually so is Bathsheba. He's put her life on the line as well, But, but somehow as a king, the legal system of Israel wouldn't put him to death for committing adultery. I just thought it was a newer thing, but apparently it's been going on a long time. Isn't it interesting that people of power get away with things? <laughs> now when David learned that he'd impregnated Bathsheba, he tried to cover it up. He tried to get Uriah to come home to have sex with his wife so that the baby looked like Uriah's, not his. But man, Uriah, he was such a good man. He, he was an ever loyal soldier. He was more committed to king and country than the king was. He was a a man of character, and David's attempt to to frame him uh, ultimately failed. And so David devised another plan, this time to kill him. Now, David's one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and I hate reading this story, because he was a... I want to like him, I love the David and Goliath story, I love what he did, but, but we read this and, and, and the hero has become the villain and it makes my stomach turn a little bit. The problem was David's lust was out of control, but that's how lust works. What starts out as a glance, what starts out small, what starts out as curiosity, what starts out as, as being in the wrong place at the wrong time leads to a, a violation of conscience and ultimately a wake of destruction. You can know this, that lust will always lead to destruction. While David lusted Bathsheba from his rooftop, man, we got it a lot easier these days. We can satisfy our sexual lusts through, through our Phones, through our tablets, through, through our computers. One of the largest porn websites reported in 2019 that there were 42 billion visits, that's with a B, billion visits to their website. Of all the countries that went, the United States, of course, topped the charts with the most visitors. Average visit time was about 10 minutes and 36 seconds. 70% of the visitors were male, 30% were female and a whopping 81% of them viewed the porn site from their phone. A lot of times we type, tend to think, well, pornography is just a guy issue. No, 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 one in three porn users are women. It's not just a guy issue, this is, a, this is an us issue. It's been said that men are more drawn to visual porn, and I would probably say that that's right, they're more drawn to that. Women are more drawn to literary porn. But man, this quote just rings true. Men will always fall in love with what they see. Women will always fall in love with what they hear. That's why women will always wear makeup and men will always lie. Just because a desire feels right doesn't make it right. And study after study, you get away, all right, let's put Christianity aside. Science is finding out that online pornography use is creating significant problems in sexual development and sexual function. In other words, whether we're married or unmarried, our sexual desires and lusts can prevent us from having fulfilling relationships. Lust and our desires, when unchecked, can be relationship killers. Now, I'm going to confess something to you. Um, Growing up, I always wanted to believe that I was special, that I was different than everybody else. Um, I grew up uh, in, in the late 80s and 90s, and so I love like, shows like MacGyver. Any MacGyver fans out there? Some of you are, like, I would never admit in public that I like MacGyver. Uh, I, I like Knight Rider. That was always fun, a little David Hasselhoff action. Uh, there's Magnum P.I. Anyway, I don't know, and all these movies back in the day, and these TV shows, they always had a moment in the series in which somebody would sneak up behind somebody with a handkerchief that had chloroform on it, and they would put it on their face and they would make them pass out. You guys remember this? Yeah. Yeah, I always like to believe in my head that, you know what, I'm special, I'm unique. And if somebody came and did that, I bet that chloroform wouldn't work on me. <laughs> i watch them, you know, and you'd watch these movies and they come and kill somebody with like a syringe. I bet, I bet you know, they give that syringe to me. What if I'm different? What if I, it didn't take me out? Like I'm Superman. So I remember when I went to get my wisdom teeth out and I was thinking, you know, this is my moment to find out. Like the anesthesiologist, he thinks he's going to knock me out, but what if he can't knock me out? After I woke up, I realized (laughs) I'm not so special. (laughs) It should have tipped my hat when I had a headache that ibuprofen worked, but I was like, no, I'm different, you know? And so it makes no sense. Uh, But I think in the same way that I just kind of thought that I was gonna be different, I thought that when it came to sexual sins, I ain't gonna struggle with that. I ain't gonna be my thing. I'm different than everybody else. Hey, I can watch that and it not affect me. Hey, I don't have a problem with that. I'm gonna be different, But after I found out that I wasn't immune to the medicine of the world today, I found out that I'm not immune to lust and sexual desires. And as a teenager, when internet was dial up and you had to wait for porn to load, I found I had a problem. It's amazing how God created your body to where sexual images at a young age are imprinted into your memory. It's amazing how I can remember the very first thing that I ever saw. That thing that happened chemically in my brain when I watched this as a, as a teenager was what God intended for me to have when I was with my wife in marriage for the first time to bond me to her. But instead, this bonding chemical was used to bond me to some stranger digitally. People get stuck in porn most of the time just because of meaninglessness. They don't know their purpose in life and I'm bored, and I don't know what else to do, and it seems like this kind of fits and fills me. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says that without vision, the people perish. And I just gotta say that you've gotta have a reason to go through the withdrawal of becoming healthy. Purity's not for the faint of heart. 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says that we are to run from sexual sin, because no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. In, in the Greek, when it says run, some translations say flee from sexual sin. Uh, that term, sexual sin, you're like, well, what is that? Well, it's the word uh, in Greek called pornonia. It's uh, kind of a junk drawer term that says anything that's outside of marriage, inside, or a sex inside of marriage, that's wrong. Like it didn't go through and list all of the things that would be wrong because there would be some pervert in history that would come up with something that wasn't in the list. So I just say, hey, let's just cover all sexual sin with one word here. And when we think about this idea that we're to run from sexual sin, that we're to flee from it, it seems unreasonable. Like, no, I'm strong enough. Like, I don't have to run. Like, I'll just, you know, meander away. I'll just, I don't have to be crazy. Uh, My parents used to live on uh, three acres, and and I remember this story of uh, they were working out in the back, you know, and we had like a little creek there, and so they are cleaning some stuff up. Well... My dad just looks up and my mom is trucking across the backyard, running as fast as she can at like age 50. My dad didn't know why she was running, but you know what my dad started doing? He started running too. <laughs> and as they're running, why are we running? There's a snake. My dad didn't see it, but my mom saw it. When it comes to sexual sin, when we see it, if we see the snake, we should run and when we see someone else running, hey, you know what, we should just go too. We don't have to personally experience the sexual temptation. Just run, learn from others. Run, flee. You know, as I began, as a, a young person, to, to look at this stuff, I began to realize like, that it gets a hook, it, it gets a foothold in your life. Like It's not easy just to quit. It's not easy just to stop. It's not like, well, I'll just not never do that again. I said that, and then I did it again. And then that like, compounded like guilt and shame. And and what I found was that shame began to hold me back. And and, and I I like to think of it like this, that when I thought of the, the shame of the sexual sin I had, I did not want anybody to know about it. I did not like it. And so when I sinned sexually, I wanted to live like this. Because I thought that somehow, like, maybe if I just hid this, and, and if I can't see you, well, maybe, maybe you can't see me. And the first person to ever put the bag over their head of shame was Adam and Eve in the garden. They did the one thing that God told them not to do, and as a result, they went and hid in the bushes, and it was as though they put this, this paper bag over their head, and they thought, well, if I can't see God, God can't see me, and if, and if we can't see one another, then, then maybe, maybe, just maybe this will just go away. And the truth is, is that when I began to struggle with pornography, I began to look at things, it was as though I put this thing on my head, and I did not want anybody to really know what was going on inside of me. I was ashamed of it. I wanted to hide it. I don't want anybody to know the real me. Here's the facade. You can get to know me this way. So I would walk into church with this bag over my head. You don't need to, to know the real me. You can just know this version of me. Thing is is that man, everybody else in the church had one of these on their head too. We all are walking around acting as though we don't have a problem when we all have a problem and we're ashamed and we don't wanna bring it out. And you know what allowed this to come off? It was called confession. It was when I actually brought what was in the dark into the light and it was highly uncomfortable. First person I confessed to was my best friend. It wasn't that helpful because he struggled with the same thing so we were just both like, oh, okay, we're both screwed (laughs) up. But when I had the courage to confess to my father freedom. Freedom came. If you allow it to live in the dark, it's always gonna have a bondage on you. You have to bring it into the light. You talk about a weird conversation to have with your dad slash pastor. <laughs> it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't easy, but it was the beginning of getting rid of shame and being able to move forward. It was the beginning of God beginning to to meet my needs. So often we think confession, man, it's so bad you don't want to tell anybody what you did. That's because you got pride. The key to confession is healing. That's the result. We need to learn how to confess, not just to God, but to someone that loves and cares about us enough in this life. To tell us, that God loves us, and he's not done with us. It's wild when you actually look at the story of David because at the end of the day, like him and Bathsheba ended up having another kid, which was in the descendant line of Jesus. Inside of Jesus was the blood of David and Bathsheba. How did God redeem that? After David died, you know what God said of David? He was a man after my own heart. Even though he did some horrible things and sins, it didn't disqualify him from God's plan for his life. God was still able to use him. Let me close with a story, I know we're going over a little bit. I, I have three boys, we've been enjoying unseasonably warm weather and so it's been great. We've been getting out of the house, we've been going back into the backyard. My oldest two, now eight and six, love to throw the football around. They have this little junior football. And they're like, Dad, can you come play football with us? I'm like, yeah, let's go. So while we're playing, the three-year-old has found the toy bin that's outside. And he's like spring cleaning. Everything's coming out. Here's the T-ball set. Here's the tent. Here's the chalk. And and we had one of those vortex footballs. I don't know how many of you guys remember the vortex football. Small. It's got little whistles on it. It's awesome. You can throw it like a baseball. And so I was like, dude, let's play with this one. So I was like, boys, I threw their little junior ball away, and we started throwing this vortex, which was a blast, you know, because they got little arms that they could throw, and it was great. But Max, my 8-year-old, he was like, I don't want to play with that one. That one's hard to catch because it does move faster and it's smaller. And so when I started throwing it with his 6-year-old brother, who's two years younger than him, and the 6-year-old caught it and then celebrated, now the 8-year-old wanted to have some more, more reps. He wanted, to, he wanted to have the chance to catch the thing to impress Dad. So I'm watching, um, and I kind of got out of the loop of throwing the ball, and so my six-year-old goes to throw it to my eight-year-old who's standing in front of me, and of course, again, it's smaller and it moves faster. My eight-year-old went to catch it, and it was a little bit low, and so he went down like this, but he was a little slow, and it went right through his arms, and, you know, got the family jewels, okay? Okay. Now, now, fifty percent of the room doesn't know what that's like. All the men in the room, we all know. Oh my goodness, it's so bad. Like, and, and all you women are like, yeah, but we had to give birth. I don't know if it relate like this. It's unexpected. You don't. It's so. I mean, it's so bad. I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. And and this was the first time that my eight year old had ever experienced this. And he, you can't make this stuff up. He collapsed to the ground. And rolled onto his back and, and looked at me and threw big tears in his eyes, it was like, I got hit in the private part. <laughs> and he proceeded to cry at that level, like, you can't breathe. You know what I mean? Like their face is all just but there's no breathing, and it's just like, are they okay? Like, and I was like, buddy, I was like, hey, we're gonna need to, we're gonna need to stand up, okay? <laughs> we're gonna need we're going we're gonna walk, okay? And so I, I went to pick him up and his legs were just all... And I, I literally picked him up and he just went right back down. I was like, no, you gotta stand up. It's just, it's just, I, about, about four or five times. Like, I was like, no, you gotta like, stand. He just wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't do it. And so I was like, come on, get up, get up, get up. I said, so I'm gonna I'm I'm walk with you, son. He recovered. But as I reflect back on that moment... And I put myself into Max's shoes. He, number one, was experiencing unexpected pain. He didn't think playing football in the backyard was gonna cause this. It caught him off guard. Number two, this is the worst pain he's ever felt in his eight years of existence. He has nothing to compare it to. It is the number one worst thing that's ever happened in his life. Now, I'm an adult there's worse things that'll happen, but he doesn't know that. In the moment, it was the worst thing he had. And when you have an unexpected pain that's the worst pain you've ever felt, you know what you have? And some of you might remember this from your childhood. There is a fear because you don't know, is this pain gonna stop? You don't know, am I gonna be okay? You don't know in the moment if this is the new normal. I've never been here. I've never felt this. I'm not sure what the future holds. I'm scared, and I'm in fear. But, but the good news for Max was that his dad was there. His dad is someone who, who loves him, number one. I care about him. I care about him a lot. And I don't just love him, but I recognized his pain. I didn't ignore it. My eyes weren't somewhere else. No, I saw exactly what happened. And in that moment, I was able to sympathize with his pain. I didn't minimize it. I said, it's no big deal. No, no, no. It's bad. This hurts. But the thing that I was able to do, because I've been there and I could sympathize with him, he didn't feel alone, but I was also able to give him some hope. Hey, buddy, I've been there and you're going to be okay. Okay. There's something about hearing that. No, you're going to be okay. It's not just made up. No, no. I've been there, son. I know. You're going to come out on the other side of this. But I need you to get up. And you know what I did? I walked with him. I didn't just send him inside to go see his mother. She didn't know the story until today. I walked with him. Uh, can I just tell you, that this is God's desire for the church and the church family. See, you're, you're gonna go through some things in life. It's gonna be unexpected. You're gonna think it's the worst thing that's ever happened and you're gonna be afraid. You don't know what your future holds. But can I tell you that God has put us into community with one another so that there can be people who come alongside of you and love you. They recognize your pain. They don't try to talk you out of it. They don't just tell you their story and compare who's been in more pain. No, 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 no. We sympathize. We get it. It's painful. It hurts a lot. But in the church body here, can I just tell you that there's someone here who can provide some hope? Their testimony, their story, will help you know that, hey, yeah, I may not be broken forever. There's a God who can heal. And the best beautiful part about being a part of a church is that we get to walk through it together. You don't have to do this on your own, we're meant to do life together. you guys would us bow our heads. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for bringing us to this place. Thank you for being patient with us. God, ultimately, we want to honor you, and we want your best in our life, which means that we have to align ourselves with you. So I pray, God, for those who are in pain today, whether it's unexpected, maybe it's the worst pain they've ever felt. I pray, Lord, that there would be healing that would begin as they push into the community known as the church. I pray that there would be newness of life that comes to them and that, Lord, their best days would be ahead. May no one be in bondage to their past or to their history, but, Lord, may they have a bright future as they fix their eyes on you, the author and perfecter of their faith. Jesus, we love you. We look to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit NewLifeKC.com.